This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And what was that thing that you just heard, or that the our thing listeners the, just heard, Andrew? At the beginning of the of the audio file that you downloaded to your phone or computer, you mean? Yeah. Hopefully Craig? you didn't. <laughs> what? <laughs> hopefully our listeners didn't like turn off the episode because they were so confused. I mean, our logo is still there on their mobile device or well, whatever you, they're you, using. <laughs> There's a very small window of time. Like if you listen for five seconds, but not for six seconds, you might have been very confused. <laughs> so Craig, I have a question for you. Okay. What's what's a head gum? I don't know what a, is it a, do you want a goofy answer? Or do you want the real answer? I want the real answer. Oh, it's a podcast network that we joined. Whoops. We sold out. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> We're shills now. Not That's actually. not true. That's totally no. not true. Um, Headgum is a a brand spanking new podcast network founded by uh, Jake Hurwitz and Amir Blumenfeld, who you may also know from their work on College Humor and their show uh, If I Were You, which is another podcast that you can download on the internet. Specifically on the Headgum network, I'm told. Yeah, headgum.com is the place where you can find more about the network and the shows on it and the people on the show's um, the other one you might maybe have heard of, depending on the circles that you run in, is Gilmore Guys, which is a podcast where two people watch every episode of the Gilmore Girls, which I haven't done, but I kind of want to <laughs> do it so I can listen to the podcast. Yeah, Laura went through the whole series on Netflix a couple months ago, and I would just kind of wander in and out of the room and sing the theme song and like watch some <laughs> of the scenes. And it's a good show. I just never... I would probably go back just for Gilmore Guys. It was funny. That show kind of entered my consciousness as Laura was going through that whole marathon. So Yeah, Susanna's started it pretty recently, and I watched like half of an episode. And it's very it's very 2003 or whatever, whatever year it started in. It's very much a product of its time. They drink a lot of coffee, though. That hasn't changed about the world. A lot of coffee. It's gotten worse, I think. I think so, it has. yeah, we... We were approached a couple of weeks ago by uh, by Jake and Amir, and they asked if we were interested in joining their network. And we were like, well, what does that mean? And the short version is this. So basically for you guys, not a whole lot is going to change. Like we still totally own the show and get to do whatever we want. Mm -hmm. So that means if we want to read a dumb murder mystery book or like a choose your own adventure, nobody can tell us no because we are mad with power still. <laughs> We, we are have drunk the same on power <laughs> of power that we had to be drunk on before, but um, they are going to expose us to a wider audience. Um, I think eventually they'll start probably selling some ads. I mean, we're going to keep those tasteful and short for you guys, and we're going to make sure that it's all stuff that we also like, which is which is also power that we have. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. under the terms of our agreement. Craig, do you have anything else you want to? Uh, just that their podcast launched pretty quickly, and one of the tenants, I guess, of their organization is kind of creating a diverse group of both podcasters and content. Um, which is one of the reasons I think that they brought us on board. They didn't really have like a literary fake people who know about book show. Uh, We're real people. We have, we fake know about books. (laughs) Fair enough. Don't get it Um, wrong. But they, they've also got, you know, a kind of pretty diverse roster of hosts covering different topics. And that seemed to jive with what we were into. They seemed pretty confident in people they thought were funny and, could make good shows and now Mm -hmm. they were they approached us in the second wave of kind of curating shows that they think are are good and deserve a wider audience and it fits our goal of reaching a wider audience and we've actually always had as you could tell from last week really good experiences with other people who make podcasts so we're just kind of hoping that this keeps us on that trajectory rather than changing anything in the actual function of the show yeah, right. So, so this is still the same overdue that you've come to know and tolerate over the last two and a half years. I mean, it's, it's still like a four minute intro that doesn't even talk about a book. So, yeah, we're right on course. Nothing's changed. Oh, yeah. Four minutes is is cons- a conservative <laughs> estimate. So, all right. The deal for people who have not listened before, because hopefully we've got some of you, is that every week one of us reads a book and then talks about it and the author and like the relevant themes and about like whatever lunch we had to the other person who just sits there and says nothing and hopefully yeah right and hopefully (laughs) it's a little informative and a little funny and a little strange that's the goal i don't think we can help it being strange maybe a little thought provoking craig do you want to how many thoughts of are you going to provoke this week with the book that you read (laughs) Oh no! That, that slippery that slippery sentence you had there was provoking. It almost got away from me, but I. <laughs> it's like when you take your phone out of your pocket and you almost drop it, and then you like hit it, and then you catch it, and you're like, "That was smooth, but not smoother than not dropping my phone in the first place." <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's a thing that happens. I almost dropped my phone in the toilet the other day, and I, w- uh, I felt like such a ninny. A ninny It was hammer. so close. A ninny oh, hammer. Butterfingers. Butter <laughs> and then I have told to you stop people, eating butterfingers in the bathroom. <laughs> then you have to. Then you have to be that person who goes on Facebook and is like, "I guess Facebook's the best way to reach me. Phone's dead." I feel so bad for people who've been reduced to that. Because <laughs> you know why? They don't say why. But you know why it happened. It's always toilets. I really did not mean to get us on another tangent. Craig, what book did you read this week? I read All the King's Men by Robert Penn Warren. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Tell me more. (laughs) Uh, It was written in 1947. It won the Pulitzer Prize. has been adapted into two films. One... Uh, that was made in 49, I believe, that won like three Oscars. And one that was released in 06, starring Sean Penn, of all people. How many Oscars How many Oscars did that one win? Zero. None? Was it none Oscars? Okay. <laughs> none Oscars. All right. Uh, and that's one of the things where they claimed with the second movie that they were hewing more closely to the book. And that's a recipe for boring movie, I think. Yeah. <laughs> 
especially when having read this book, it is certainly a product of its time and era in terms of style. We'll get to that a little later. But I can see why it might need some cutting and changing if you were making a film. Yeah, usually you can't just burp up a book onto a like <laughs> onto the pages of a script and expect everything to go well. No, I mean you can you could get too far away from the source material and wreck it. But yeah, just, just doing a straight book to movie adaptation is rarely a recipe for success. Um, I'll tell you some things I know about Robert Penn Warren since you're laughing too hard I'm to talk. Still recovering from the word burp. Why is that the <laughs> verb that you chose? You just get a little irpy when you're writing. <laughs> so, uh, Robert Robert Penn Warren existed in an interesting time in society. Like he was he was a Southerner. Mm-hmm. And you know he was born in 1905, died in 1989. So he he was there. Like it's not like the immediate aftermath of the Civil War or anything. But you know the no. South and the North are still having a hard time like reconciling, and the Civil Rights Movement is this up and coming thing. So originally he's he is a member of a couple different groups. There's a group of poets known as the fugitives. And then this other group known as the Southern agrarians. And there's a lot of uh, crossover between the two groups. Now I don't want to hold anything against poets. Okay. Okay. But, speak for yourself, but go ahead. But what, Hey, now what about <laughs> poetry me, would drive you to name your group of poets, like a biker gang? Like why, were they? Why did he and John Crow Ransom disco- decide that they were the biker gang of poetry, Andrew? I think you just want to feel cooler. <laughs> okay. Like if you if you start a Magic the Gathering club, like are you are you gonna call it like the wiz- the Wizards Quorum, or are you gonna come up with like a cool name for it? <laughs> I thought. Well, see to to. <laughs> <laughs> I thought your unsatisfactory like Magic the Gathering group would be called Card Kids or something. Card Kings. Card ki- Oh, that's a good one. Then you don't just have to play Magic. You could play all sorts of games. You play Pokemon, get some Yu-Gi-Oh up in there. I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to play the Star Wars CCG next time for Card Kings. Oh man. You man. need that. You need that card that turns the Death Star on. It's just as valuable as the Death Star card itself. <laughs> Doesn't you can't start a card without the keys. <laughs> so yeah he was in he was in these groups the southern agrarians their big work was uh, i'll take my stand the south and the agrarian tradition and um agrarian tradition is sort of a pretty euphemism for um like the lost cause of the confederacy which is this kind of movement that romanticized the you know the pre-war south while also simultaneously kind of pretending that slavery was not as big a component in it as it was like it tried to reframe the civil war as being more about like states rights and the rights Mm. of the individual compared like instead of slavery interesting which was like which is not the coolest idea i don't think no Um, and so i'll take my stand like it was it was written by a bunch of different people including warren but generally like it espoused like the 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 virtues of separate but equal and um, segregation and all that fun stuff. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, he is 
I know that he, later in his life he ended up living up in the Northeast, like up in Connecticut and stuff. Yeah. And, so, so what makes him more? In, well, what makes him interesting relative to some of the other people who were in the fugitives and the Southern agrarians were that um, you know his views, quote unquote, evolved. I guess is what you what you still say when you used to hate. A group of people and then you come around to not hating them like well that's, and and i that's should, probably way oversimplifying and insulting and, and i would like to to kind of retract the implications of my earlier statement that you would need to move north to have your views change like that that seems yeah. really reductive and unfair but we just gotta walk some stuff back yeah well but that's part of out. the that's part of the scholarly narrative about him i'll say that i will i will yeah. throw whoever wrote that thing i read under the bus how about that yeah, so eventually he came around to being like a supporter of the civil rights movement, but it's it was like his definition of like agrarianism kind of evolved too. It's not like he totally turned his back on that on that like viewpoint, but he came to understand it in a different way. So so his argument for civil rights was like that it was about it was about like individual rights. Sure. And the the um, you know the identity of the individual, and so it's it didn't it almost doesn't conflict with the agrarian stuff. It's just almost. it's a it's a different spin on the same kind of idea, I guess. So yeah, he wrote this essay in Life magazine in 1956 called uh, "The Divided South Searches Its Soul," and then later he did another book called "Who Speaks for the Negro," which is a book of interviews with civil rights leaders like Malcolm X and hmm. Martin Luther King Jr. and and some others. So yeah, he um I guess is on the quote unquote right side of history. Interesting, as you would say for this issue. But it's it just it's interesting that he he started in one place and ended up in another. Like I was thinking as I was researching him that it was going to be one of those podcasts where we have to talk about separating the work from the person who wrote the work or well funny you know fun, but, yeah funny you should say that so two things that i want one thing i want to say before i forget to is that we won't talk a lot i think in this podcast about the book's treatment of black characters mostly because it borders on bad to not at all like okay it uh kind of uses uh not like horrific language but certainly drops the n-word like liberally just because that's what you would do i suppose um which is not a good enough excuse now and mm-hmm. uh doesn't really have a lot of black characters at all they don't really factor into the story now given that it is a political novel set in the 30s you might expect that to kind of be the case but it's also there are enough characters that depending on what you're writing about that would be more than appropriate so yeah um some people have kind of taken the book to task for that or taken Warren to task for that and it's a valid criticism that mostly is it's notable for its absence how about that okay uh, um is there any i had one more Warren thing well i want I to talk about any, any other new criticism stuff. real quick okay yeah, you, hit it what you just said about uh judging an author versus judging their work seems relevant to uh, Warren and John Crow Ransom, like as I mentioned before, who were advocates of not only the, the agrarian tradition, but a movement in the study of literature called New Criticism, which is in the, a mid-20th century thing. Uh, that meant, and we may have talked about this on the show before, I don't remember, but you are meant to examine works as self-contained, self-referential things. Like mm-hmm. you're almost supposed to ignore 
the larger context of when they were written or why they were written. Basically, everything we do on this show before we start talking about the books. Uh, And that, particularly for poetry, you're supposed to be able to look at how a book or poetry, how a work is structured linguistically and stylistically and how it functions in and of itself and kind of determine an objective meaning of the work, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. Uh, The two fallacies that are part of New Criticism are the affective fallacy, which the idea that a reader's response, response to a work dictates its meaning at all, or the intentional fallacy, which is that the author's intent dictates meaning. Um, and the new critics would argue that neither of those are the case, <laughs> that something in the work is intrinsic and can be discovered through close reading. Um, I think that has fallen largely out of vogue, but it certainly has some useful tools for how we evaluate fiction. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know what I yeah, mean? I guess it's, it's like, I don't know. Cause, cause we, that's, that's very foreign to our way of talking about books on the show because we're always trying to, I don't know. There are a lot of books. I feel like you couldn't understand them if you didn't like have some inkling of what was going on like around them. But I guess it, it, I don't know. You're supposed to come at stuff without any like preconceived notions or something. Well, it seems like a movement. Which seems, which seems valuable. I don't know. It seems like a movement founded by a bunch of authors who didn't want their stuff discussed in the context of other things. <laughs> And it's also, it's been written that New Criticism may have come out of World War II specifically as writers were attempting to, so horrified by the world that existed before them, were um, attempting to remove their work from it contextually. Mm-hmm. Like, judge my judge my literature based on the literature, not on the other crap that we don't want to deal with. Okay. Um, I think it works better for poetry than it does for fiction, just in terms of how character building gets done in fiction. And novels are so systemic in their structure that I think when you're just playing with language and imagery in a poem, it's probably easier to do that. Um, yeah, what, what else did you want to say about Warren Andrews since we're running a little long here in this section? Oh, the last thing I wanted to bring up was again about the the poetry versus versus a fiction thing and okay warren is the only person who has won pulitzer prizes for both fiction and poetry correct and i just want to know like what is it that keeps those two from from intersecting more like what is the is it just like a west side story snap fight all the time like (laughs) fiction versus poetry and you never the twain shall meet is it just that people who write fiction are sucky at poetry and vice versa? Like what, what, give me a theory. Hit is it a, ja- is it like a, you, could you not be a jack of both trades? Is it the kind of thing where if you're going to be good enough to write a novel that would win the Pulitzer, you probably don't have 10,000 hours to become a master of poetry as well? I guess. Yeah. Is well, you have to you have to start early and often with both, I guess. I suppose. To also to to back up your argument about it being like a sharks jet scenario, I'm <laughs> fairly certain that other poets and former laure- laureates help determine winners. So maybe you just don't go to the right cocktail parties. Okay. It's worth noting that Warren is the first person to receive the title of poet laureate of the United States. 
mm-hmm. previous to that it was called like consultant of poetry to the library of congress which is like <laughs> what does that even mean that's a dumb thing um what does poet laureate even mean i mean you're just like this is the guy this is the poet guy if we ever need some poetry written about something <laughs> okay. this is who we go to uh yeah there other than that i didn't come up with anything too crazy in his personal life he he had a eye removed when he was 16 because he got hit with a rock which is like every parent's worst nightmare yikes yeah uh so he didn't go into the navy because of that he went on to study at vanderbilt at age 16 maybe maybe you have to be some sort of preternatural genius to win two pulitzers not sure i think well i mean it's a thing well he lost an eye so his other senses got stronger so he just got (laughs) he got better at writing yeah that makes sense so i'm gonna cut my arm off and then i'm gonna win a nobel peace prize (laughs) harder to wage war with one arm one might argue true yeah you might call it like a disarmament policy oh boy <laughs> if anyone was what was worried about what was going to change about this show it's nothing absolutely nothing still dumb let me read to you andrew now the opening section of the new york times review of all the king's men from 1947 okay i i stumbled across this and i just had to share it the summer fiction doldrums are over An exciting new novel is published today. It isn't a great novel or completely finished work of art. It is as bumpy and and uneven as a corduroy road. Somewhat somewhat irresolute and confused in its approach to vital problems and not always convincing. Nevertheless, Robert Penn Warren's All the King's Men is magnificently vital reading. A book so charged with dramatic tension, it almost crackles with blue sparks. A book so drenched with fierce emotion, narrative pace, and poetic imagery that its stature as a, quote, reading book, as some of its, <laughs> as some, as some of its what characters is that? Is that, hey, What is that, or is that one of them reading books? Dwarfs that of most current publications. Here you go, Andrew. Here, my lords and ladies, is no book to curl up with in a hammock, but a book to read until three o'clock in the morning. A book to read on trains and subways while waiting for streetcars and appointments while riding elevators or elephants. <laughs> I want to go back com- in time. The two most common forms of transportation in 1949. I want to go back in time and just read book reviews. Well, because apparently you can write a book of a, a review of a book without actually saying anything about the book. Why is this guy writing a book review as if he were standing on the street corner? Like, here, here. Extra, extra. Extra, extra. Book is good. Like, what? <laughs> it's not perfect. That's the part I love. It's like, it's, it isn't a great novel or a completely finished work of art, but it is vital reading. It, there's it got to be at some point in history there's got to be some news day that's been so slow where a book review <laughs> is the thing that the newsie would be yelling about on the street to sell the papes book is out new words today new book. words <laughs> <laughs> author puts new words inside of manuscript book won't you <laughs> so now that we've said nothing about what this book is let's dive into it shall we this is your you're driving this train. I need your I, affirmation constantly. I mean, I guess trains just go on a track <laughs> usually. Step on the gas. 
So this book is loosely based on a real person named Huey Long. Have you ever heard of Huey Long, Andrew? No. I had not either. Huey Long was a uh, politician in the 30s in Louisiana, and he was a governor for four years, then became a member of the Senate, and then he was assassinated in 1935. He was an outspoken populist whose motto was share the wealth. He ran on a share the wealth platform, Andrew. So he's a communist. Well, so he's a commie born in Kenya. He was he said Ugh. that his his version of politics was the perfect way to fight off communism. A democracy so perfect that people wouldn't have any complaints, he said. He ran on a platform of every man a king but no one wears a crown. Again, maybe a communist. Um he promoted free, you know, free hospitals and clinics and schools. He planned to cap income and personal fortunes and then just give away money to people. Okay. Uh, he called himself the Kingfish, which is pretty cool. <laughs> That's like a fine nickname. It's yeah. not like the toughest. <laughs> but it's fine. It's pretty good. Uh, initially, he was like kind of a good old boy with FDR like they seemed to be speaking the same language during the first iteration of the New Deal mm -hmm. um, and then once right before he was assassinated he was kind of planning to run for president and he had started to distance himself from FDR saying that FDR was not liberal enough okay I know and uh, so some people kind of see Huey Long as maybe pushing FDR a little f further left than he might have otherwise been and he was killed by the nephew of a judge that he was planning to, like, oust from office. So Huey Long was also, like, a ball buster and didn't always play by the rules and bribed a bunch of people. And he played the game. You know what I mean? No, it sounds like he did. So he clearly made... He's very... Um, he's a very polarizing figure in, in the history of politics. I've, I've come to learn. Yeah, because I mean, in in your description of him, you can almost hear the the um, I don't know, like proto versions of your Bernie Sanderses and your Elizabeth Warrenses and your yeah, your like populist, left leaning people who would be way into like wealth redistribution if that wasn't like political death for for anybody in this country. I don't know. Yeah, but also not a not a capital P populist, like a lowercase p populist, like. You know, he was into raising literacy rates and, you know, you know, bridging the gap between rural Louisiana and urban Louisiana. But he after he got into office, it seemed like all he wanted to do was keep playing the game like classic like HBO drama scenario. Okay. Um, and so he wasn't beholden to a party. He seemed beholden only to Huey Long. <laughs> <laughs> and that factors directly into this book um pen warren has said that the main character one of the main characters of all the king's men willie stark is uh is not huey long he is himself but there is certainly a, a lot all of the same signposts are there along the way there's a failed governorship run um there's you know eventual eventual senate plans um, he's running on similar platforms, um, and the story ends similarly, which we will get to. Okay, so uh, who's who's the king? Who are his men? And like, what is this book trying to say? Okay, so 
Willie Stark is the king. He's 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 the king. And he's the don't call him Huey Long. Figure. Yes. Okay. Referred to constantly as the boss, like capital B the boss. Like Springsteen. Also this book is about Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, it really it really prophesied Bruce Springsteen. It really it really The boss's did. rise to power. Now it's told from the perspective of Jack Burden, who is a former reporter turned like political right-hand man for uh Willie Stark. So he just works for him. He doesn't even seem to have a real title. He just kind of does stuff for him. Um with all the nefarious implications that that comes with Mm -hmm. and it's about willie stark's rise to power it's about jack's own personal struggle multiple times throughout the book jack tells us that this is a story about willie stark but it's also a story about me because our stories are intertwined other major players in the book include the childhood friends of jack adam and ann stanton they are brother and sister adam is like the hero doctor of the community who Willie later recruits to run a hospital for him and is not a great character. (laughs) Do you mean he's just a bad person in the book or that he's not a well-constructed? Sorry, this is character. Sorry, this is Anne. Excuse me. She is. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. She is the latter. She is not a (laughs) well-conceived. She is the, the focus of a lot of attention, uh, and even this, even the book review from the 1940s called her out for being kind of a mystery of a character in a bad way. Like, okay. there's not a lot driving that train. That's that's too bad. So, I guess I will just kind of try to give you the the quick rundown of the plot. This book is forever long. So, do you want me to like? Yeah. Do you want to ask me questions? First, my first question is what because in Huey Long's story, it sounds like. It might be the story of somebody who starts with with good intentions, but then eventually just gets caught up in the system that he was trying to do something about. Like, is there like a rise and fall kind of thing in this book or like what's the what's the arc of the of the of like Willie Stark and also of the person who's telling us the story? So Willie Stark's arc. Yes, it does have a rise and fall of Thomas Gibbons Roman Empire style like. He starts as a small town lawyer. He owned a farm. He goes up in his in his bedroom at night and studies law books. And then he goes and he takes the test. He becomes a lawyer. Cool. He's in the system. Mm-hmm. Then he starts trying to make some change. He uh, called out this school. The, the big like political windfall that he has initially is this schoolhouse was going to get built with crappy bricks. They were going to use bad bricks, Andrew. And... Ugh. I know. The gall of them. I know. And they knew it was bad bricks because it was like a personal deal. Like they were greasing people's pocketbooks with the with the brick deals, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and Willie all along knew that this was bad and that they were going to make a bad schoolhouse and someone was going to get hurt. But they went ahead anyway and then some kids died. And so they were like on a fire escape or something that fell over. And so Willie Stark gets a lot of public attention for having gone on record as saying this was a terrible idea. Brickgate. Yeah. Already you've got this like political ascendancy via tragedy, which is kind of gross. Yeah. Like I'm trying to think in modern political life, like if you could 
take a tragedy like that and be like, oh, I told you so. I was I right. I don't know Vote what for that me. would. I don't know what that would be. Most of those are just kind of bad right now. Like yeah. I don't. There's no one that was involved in Bridgegate with Chris Christie who seemed to benefit from that. No, no, I don't think so. Um, so he moves into politics, and these people recruit him to run for the governor, and he's running against McMurphy and Joe Harrison. I don't remember McMurphy's name. It's irrelevant. Okay. Now, we're, we're never talking about specific parties. Penn Warren doesn't really do that. But um, you get the sense that Stark is liberal-leaning, McMurphy is close, and Harrison is a good old boy. Good old okay. boy on the right. And Stark is terrible. I don't know if you think you would be good at politics, Andrew, but one of the things that I know that I would be bad about is doing what Stark does initially is like, overly presenting the facts like they spend a lot of time talking about his speeches are just all numbers based yeah i mean i've seen a bunch of episodes of the west wing and they talk about this (laughs) a lot is that people like you can't just like teach people into voting the way that you want yeah there's like Mm -hmm. there is an element of used car salesman in there that you've got to work in (laughs) to like talk people into stuff so there's a there's a great quote from Jack where at this point Jack is he's not working for Willie. Willie's not even in office yet, but he's a reporter covering Willie's, you know, candidacy. Mm-hmm. And he's he gives Willie this advice. Uh make him cry, make him laugh, make him think uh you're their weak erring pal, or make him think you're God Almighty, or make him mad, even mad at you. Just stir him up. It doesn't matter how or why, and they'll love you and come back for more. Tell him anything, but for sweet Jesus' sake, don't try to improve their minds. The Donald Trump candidacy, everybody. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty it's I mean, it, there's a lot going on in this book politically that even though Warren was saying that he was mostly writing about other philosophical things about history and time and familial relationships. There's some real just on the nose stuff here about politics that has not become irrelevant. Yeah. It's it's like, it's pretty cynical, but for all that, it's also not wrong. (laughs) I think American politics are one of the places where there, you can be as cynical as you want and you're still not being cynical. enough. (laughs) Yeah. Once you like, do you see how that sausage is made? You can swear off sausage, but they're just going to shove it down your face for the rest of they're your life. They're just going to keep making it. Yeah, you can And you're going to have, like, the the amount of sausage and the brand of sausage that other people eat is going to keep affecting your life. You just live in this weird sausage life. You can't escape from it. Oh, sausage everywhere. Oh, God, that sounds delicious. Um, so then... <laughs> Here's what happens. We find out that the two people who have been taking care of Willie's campaign, Tiny Duffy and Sadie Burke. All right. Tiny Duffy's a good name. Tiny Duffy's a great name. Sadie Burke, she's been working for Sensen Puckett, also an amazing name. Mm-hmm. And if, wait, wait, is he like a senator? Tell me he's a senator. Tell me no, he's Senator Sensen Bucket. No, he chews something called Sensen that like gives his mouth an odor. So they call him Sensen. Oh, gross. Like I know. Skull. Yeah. Even worse than being a senator. Am I right? Oh, <laughs> um, <laughs> and they break it to Willie 
as he's about to kind of lose, like as initial polls are coming in and he's trailing heavily, that he was set up by the Harrison team to split the McMurphy vote. I'm sure okay. if you've seen The Wire or anything like this, you know what it means for this type of gamesmanship to go on. Mm-hmm. And so Willie gets really loaded. He gets super drunk, which he's never done before. And he wakes up the next morning. He's supposed to go speak at this barbecue. So then Jack has to get him drunk again so that he's like not hungover enough to go to this barbecue. I don't know if you've ever... Well, hair of the dog. I know, a little hair. I'm there well, with you. At one point, we says, were in New Orleans last weekend. I think we know what's up. Uh, Sadie says when she first sees him, you know, Jack says, oh, "I gave him a little hair of the dog," and Sadie goes, "I think he ate the whole dog." <laughs> <laughs> so he's at this grandstand at this barbecue. He's supposed to give this speech. He's eating dogs. Uh, left he's and right. just eating dogs left and right, hot off the grill, and he throws his speech away, and goes on a drunken like rampage and spills the entire beans about how he was set up to everyone there knocks tiny duffy off the stage like into the band and then (laughs) resigns from the race and declares that he is going to campaign for mcmurphy but not because he likes mcmurphy because he hates joe harrison more and that everyone in this state are hicks just like him and don't let them tell you otherwise. You just need to vote. And if they don't do what you voted them in for, you nail them to the wall. <laughs> so he's saying what everybody's thinking. So, yes, he, he kind of goes through this crazy Hulk transformation. And uh, all like almost overnight becomes this political force that, you know, subsequently runs for governor and gets into office. Um, at one point on the road, he this is his pitch to them, Andrew. Uh, this is the truth. You are a hick, and nobody ever helped a hick but the hick himself. Up there in town, they won't help you. It is up to you and God, and God helps those who help themselves. And then later he says, if he's like planning this whole hospital that he's going to open up, and he says, if anyone stops me, I'll split them in two. Give, give me that meat axe, he yells. <laughs> and he'll like punch his fist up to the sky like he's some sort of biblical hero. Mm-hmm. With his meat axe. With his, he literally says, "Give me that meat axe." I can't imagine if a politician says such a thing today. What that? That's like the Howard Dean scream, like times <laughs> fifty. <laughs> Can you imagine? Meat oh yeah, axe. no, no. Hillary Clinton's up there. She's, you know, <laughs> she's been tacking to the left a little bit because that's what she's got to do to win, to win the primary. Uh huh. And she's like, "America, give me your meat axe." <laughs> and then she's just in the toilet after that. So this, that is the basis of the Willie Stark like ascendancy. Uh, then he, Jack he does something that's him. political suicide, but that resonates with the quote-unquote hicks of his constituency and he manages to get swept into office based on grassroots upsetness at the system correct correct amundo and then he promptly tries to take over the system from the inside he's constantly battling with the legislature he has this calvinist old testament view of the world where there's dirt on everyone like everyone is a little bit evil if that makes sense. Oh yeah. <laughs> Do you believe that to be true yourself? No, Andrew? I'm just I'm just thinking how glad I am that American politics is in no way resembles the stuff that you're describing to me anymore. Like what a 
What a gift that is. I'm not getting madder and madder at all. So there's a part of the book where Jack is now working. This is like the middle of the book, and it becomes the through line of the Willie Stark plot, which I will say is a shade underwritten for such a sprawling book. I think you could have, I think Warren could have focused more on this than he does on Jack and tightened his book up a little bit, but he doesn't. Okay. So nonetheless, uh, here's a, this is a biblical quote that I think, I don't think it's from the Bible, but he says it, it's like it is. He says, man is conceived in sin and born in corruption and he passeth from the stink of the deity to the stench of the shroud. There is always something. So he sets Jack out to go find out what the judge has done so that he can blackmail the judge into doing whatever he wants. Okay. Uh, I don't know. What do you think, Andrew? If you were in office, is it better to bribe people or to bust them? I guess you. I would just make the call based on the person. Like I would find out as much as I could about them and figure out whether they would respond better to bribe it or bust it. Now, I would probably open with a bribe. Mm. And then threaten to bust if they didn't take the bribe. But I, I like where your that's head's just at. me. Yeah. I like where your head's at. Willie Stark would disagree because first of all, busting makes you feel good. <laughs> okay. Also, if you bust someone, they can't come back and turn on you. Like if you bribe someone, it proves that they can be bought. Sure. So he is of the opinion, since he knows that people are born in the stink of the deity and will die in the stench of the shroud, uh, that there's always something so you don't need to bother bribing them. You just bust them. Get them so he's going to try and bring down Judge Slimer. <laughs> yes. Yes. To further his political goal. So what happens? Is 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 the judge like incorruptible and... And resistant to busting, and there are no skeletons in his closet anywhere? No, there is totally a skeleton in his closet that becomes a whole part of the Jack plotline. So now I should probably actually talk about the narrator of this crazy book. Is that okay? Yes. Sorry, I didn't mean to get so angry at you. You don't need to just keep asking me for permission. I'm just hanging on your every word here. That's not true. Um, Hanging on every other word, I think. That's more accurate. (laughs) Okay. Uh, So Jack... The whole book skips around, and so the whole and the whole book is told from his perspective. So there's inconsistencies in the style of writing. Sometimes it's very conversational. Sometimes it's really overblown and dramatic. And there are two readings of that. One is that Warren has no grip on his book, which might be true. Okay. Uh, the other is that it is indicative of who Jack is, and Jack seems really preoccupied with the multitudes that exist within a person. And the ability of someone to either be bound by or create like a new version of themselves. Um, and so he comes from a family where his mother kind of drove his dad away. And he never really forgave her for that. And he never really forgave his dad for being weak enough to be driven away. <laughs> Which is a <laughs> kind of crappy place to be. Uh-huh. And he goes off to school after uh, having a pretty terrible first wonderful then terrible relationship with Anne Stanton who I told you about before right the under the underdeveloped character yeah because she really only exists as part of Jack's story now it is from his perspective so that's maybe that's some of criticism you don't really get a sense of what makes her tick 
and the biggest scene that she has is this really uncomfortable memory where her and Jack almost have sex, but she really doesn't seem into it. And then he suddenly realizes that it's wrong and doesn't do it. Okay. And I like highlighted the part in the book where he literally says this is completely wrong and wrote thank you because it was kind of <laughs> it was she's like covering even as she's letting him undress her she's like covering up parts of herself and just kind of lying down and it was all I was not okay with it so I'm very happy that he didn't do that um, he goes off to school to become like a historian and. He starts diving down this primary source from his family's history of an ancestor called Cass Mastern. And he. This goes in the book as like its own story, sort of, that Jack is telling you. And it's written in this cool way where he's occasionally quoting it verbatim and occasionally telling it to you, uh, which is like a weird fictional construct. I don't know if you've. If there's anything that you can think of that functions like that. I don't. I was sort of reminded of that book you didn't like by Dave Eggers, where in the middle of it, there was like another book. Oh, there's just like a break that that may or may not break the fourth wall and completely change the way that the rest of the book is viewed, that kind of thing? It's not that extreme. It's, it's, it's not trying to rewrite the rest of the book, but it is written in a different style because it is ostensibly in the in the voice of this character from a hundred years ago. Yeah. I mean that, that kind of thing can either seem like with the, with the Dave Eggers book, it's a, uh, that, that I dislike just as much because that's a thing that he added to a later edition. That's true. As I, as because I'd found that book utterly uncompelling. This was uh, and you shall know our velocity for anybody who hasn't been listening for like two straight years. Um, <laughs> but it can, it can be effective. Like, um, in uh, then we came to the end, which we did a couple weeks ago. Uh-huh. There was that middle section that's written from the perspective, more or less, of one character who is undergoing this big, like, personal crisis. Where the rest of it is written in the first person plural and jumps back and forth between a few people, but doesn't really give you a clear vision of more than a couple of them. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it it it's effective in like breaking up what had almost become monotony in the first section and like giving all of it meaning. Oh, totally. And and making it more, I don't know, just, just more understandable and more relatable, I guess. And what this section does, he introduces it to you as a time he went digging through history. And he's about to go digging for this piece of information on the judge. And it's at this point where the book is reveals that it is not just about Huey Long. Like, it is about other stuff. Okay. Uh, that stuff being that, I th- I'm paraphrasing from the book, but... In the past lie the seeds of the future, and without understanding what has happened in the past, can you both create and deal with the future? And this is, that kind of sounds self-evident, but from the perspective of the book, there's this sense that history is inevitable, and it just kind of rolls on in a very nihilistic point of view. Mm Mm-hmm especially in politics where it's hard to get an objective view of everything. So the objective view is just that everything's terrible. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, fair. (laughs) uh, And there's a character that I can't, Hugh Miller, I think is his name. I'm going to get that wrong. That leaves the service of Willie Stark after many years because he just can't handle like playing dirty. And his quote is something along the lines of history is blind. Man is not. And there's this, willingness to see that jack has to 
has to own up to over the course of the book. Okay. Uh, so does that mean like I don't know history? History only happens one way, and like you can find the patterns in it if you're looking for it. But man, like lacks that objectivity, or what is the? Well, that history lacks that objectivity, and that man is it's up to man to make meaning from it. Oh, like history. History is completely does not care about you at all. Okay, it's Um, like the ocean. The crux of that whole like historical novel tangent is that a man, an ancestor of Jack's, ruined his best friend's uh, relationship through an adulterous affair. And then uh, Jack can't bring himself to finish his like doctoral thesis. Okay. And so he leaves, he just literally walks out of school and never completes that like book that he's working on. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says that it's because he was unwilling to face the hard truths of the story that he was uncovering. And, the way that his relationship kind of triangulates between Adam and Anne in that he's driving their sibling relationship apart in his pursuit of Anne uh, and then his, you know, failure to have to have her and still being hung up on her 20 years later. He's not kind of w- willing to own up to some to what he did wrong there. He's yeah. kind of uncovering that stuff. The The rest of the book then goes on this father-son kick that in retrospect feels very important to the book, but at the time up until it started taking shape did not seem like anything the book was concerned with, which is the governor, the boss, Willie Stark has a son named Tom that he gave everything in the world because he didn't have it. And he turned Tom into a star football player. And Tom is a little reckless. Uh, He knocks up a girl and people are going to use that for political gain against the boss which is super gross. Why wouldn't they do that? I know. I can't imagine. I can't imagine. Uh, and then they kind of brush that under the rug, but then Tom gets injured playing football. And uh, so that's like this super tragedy there. Um, and he's the point there, but he's so reckless and the, the boss drove him to it and yada, yada, yada. Uh, Jack turns out, Andrew, here's a big spoiler for this book. Uh oh! You ready for it? Yeah, I'm ready. Everyone's ready for it. His dad that he thought was such a goober for wandering away, not his dad, not at all. Who who was his dad? The judge that he had to get the dirt on. Oh no! Is that the skeleton that he finds? No, the skeleton that he finds is that the judge uh, drove a man to his death by getting a job at some big power company, and the guy threw himself out a window and told his wife that she had to. Uh, not pretend she had to pretend that it wasn't suicide so that she could collect the insurance money okay and that was in the judge's closet that's not as good a skeleton as having a secret a secret, a secret son no yeah. because then what happens is the secret son comes and tells this to you and then you die of like shoot uh, you shoot yourself i said almost said of shooting yourself uh, <laughs> okay <laughs> uh because you can't bear to live after that and then your mom tells you that that was your secret dad and that you killed him good job oedipus good work man rough yeah so where is that the is that the like crux of the book is that at the end of it pretty much that after that uh the only major thing left to happen is for the boss to die um there's a whole there's a whole tangent where the boss is sleeping with ann stanton and adam stanton doesn't like it and then the boss dies and then adam stanton dies 
and no one's happy. And then, uh, yeah, that's the book. Everyone dies at the end. Yeah, there's the the kid from the football player who got that girl pregnant. She comes back and Willie's ex-wife, or widowed wife, rather, raises him as another Willie Stark, I suppose. Like, the cycle continues. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, Jack gets out of the game and decides to tell two lies at the end of the book. Like, he doesn't tell his mom what he thinks the real cause of the judge's death is, and he doesn't tell this character Sugar Boy who really liked the boss. He doesn't tell him who he thinks is responsible for the boss dying. Mm-hmm. And for Jack, that is the closest to a major character development for him in that his pursuit of truth and information has driven a lot of people into a bad way. And to look to people in the face with two of the biggest truths to tell and to not tell them is what the book seems to be about. Okay. Bummer. Yeah, that's a lot. It's uh, <laughs> lots going on. I, I didn't mean to spoil everything, I guess. There's a wicked section where they watch a lobotomy, which is gross. Yikes. To what end? <sighs> Adam is operating on a guy, and it mostly just seems to be a literalization of the theme of people being different people throughout their lives. Uh, that like this and guy's one way been... to one way to make a person a different person <laughs> is to take some of their brain away from them. Seriously, uh, Jack goes on this whole rant where he's like believing in something called the Great Twitch, Andrew. Where he meets, listen to this. Here's the okay. You come back to me a week from now and base a whole philosophy off something this crazy. Okay. Okay. All right. Take notes. You meet a guy at a gas station. His face okay, is I'm twitching. His his face is twitching involuntarily. All right, so, so far, every guy that I've ever met at a gas station. <laughs> and you've met many. Oh, don't, don't even, let's not even talk about let's it. Let's not even go there. <laughs> and uh, he's just kind of bouncing through life. Like nothing, there's no cause and effect. He's never going to get anywhere major. He's just hitchhiking through life. Are we talking and about Twitchy guy or Twitchy the guy, Twitchy person guy. who meets Twitchy guy? Okay. Jack learns a big truth and then like runs away west and runs into Twitchy guy. And he comes back with this vision of nihilism that is embodied in the great Twitch, which is just this kind of, there are, there's no cause for anything. It's just biological instinct. The world is a rudderless vessel, etc., cetera, et cetera. Um, So next time you go to a gas station... Have your mind blown for me. I'm gonna be I'm gonna be hanging out at a lot of gas stations for the next week. <laughs> what is the guy getting this seven up slushy? Tell me about my life. <sighs> Probably not much. <laughs> He's you not don't gonna know. tell you much. All right, so that's all the that's all the king's men, right? Yeah. There's a couple struck me funnies. They use the phrase the nuts a lot. As Why, in like, what's <laughs> the first instance a photographer is taking a picture of the boss and he's trying to position him in a way with his dog and he says it'll be the nuts see oh so i mean like the bee's knees or something that's really cool all right uh here's a good one andrew when the boss gets really drunk he doesn't drink too often but when he does he has a penchant of taking off his shoes and jack refers to him as sock feet drunk (laughs) (laughs) i do like that you can tell he meant it because he was sock feet drunk i do like that a lot uh, and they also, at some point in the book, they use the phrase house tricks, which I say house tricks I all know. the time. And 
Like, no, like a third of people who I say it to are like, what? I thought it was more universal than it is. Yeah, well, I knew I thought I could it. go around talking like a flapper and people would just know what was up. <laughs> <laughs> I think the only thing left to say about this book is kind of the, the history of it after its release. There was a new edition published in 2002 uh, by an editor, Noel Polk. And Joyce Carol Oates actually wrote a response that said that it's not a great version of the book and people shouldn't read it. Yikes. Okay. Is that um, the version you read? No, I read Or was a, there a fixed version that was released in response to the crappy version? I read a I read a version published in nineteen ninety six. Okay. The the main change that the original Polk, the original edition. Yeah. The main change without that all Polk, the dinosaurs and stuff in it. There were a lot of dinosaurs in the other version, from what I'm told. Uh, the main change is Willie Stark was uh, rumored, or I guess uh, not rumored. Warren said said as much. I think that uh, was based on a character from a play he wrote called Proud Flesh, named Willie Talos, which is like some obscure Greek poetry character. I don't know. Okay. Uh, so his editor Lambert Davis was like, "Don't do that. <laughs> That's not helpful." <laughs> um, and Polk also reverted a bunch of other changes, pur- purportedly reverted, um, that Davis made to the prose to attempt to quote unquote fix it or restore it to its original luster. Um, and Oates kind of took that to task, saying that it actually made the book worse. I've read a couple other articles that say that it made the book worse. Um, so, lesson there is sometimes editors do help your book. Maybe don't crap all over editors. Yeah, we're going to talk about that a lot, actually, in our uh, in our live show, which is happening next weekend. I just wanted to get in a quick plug, because this is your last chance to show up. It's on August 29th at the Tattooed Mom Bar. What? What's funny? It's their last and only chance to show your up. Your last chance. <laughs> Tattooed Mom Bar on South Street in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, United States. Um, we're going to be going on at 2 p.m. and we're going to be reading uh, Go Set a Watchman by Harper Lee. Um, mm-hmm. We're also going to be talking probably a little bit about To Kill a Mockingbird and just how the two works relate to each other. Um, I think it's going to be a good time. That's It's part of the third annual Philadelphia Podcast Festival. And there will be a lot of other great shows going on before and after us and also the following weekend. Yeah. And I thought you guys should go out and support the bar and support the festival and most importantly, support us. We're going to be bringing some freebies to give out to people who show up. So get ready for those. Uh, yeah. I also want to thank everyone who has supported us on social media. That's twitter.com slash overdue pod and facebook.com slash overdue pod. We recently cracked 500 likes on Facebook, mm-hmm. which is pretty cool and means Twitter needs to step up its game. <laughs> <laughs> not the people who actually conversed with us on Twitter. You guys are awesome, and you showed a lot of love to Lauren last week for her awesome episode. Um, but just Twitter in general needs to step it up. I think that's where that's where I'm at. Have you seen their financial reports? Like, come on, guys, come on, ugh, ugh. earn some money. Why don't you? Also, <laughs> if you wanted to tell us how we could earn money on Twitter. That's a terrible thing to email us, but you, you could email us yeah. at overduepod at gmail.com. 
you can also go to our website. Andrew, what's our website? Our website is www.overduepodcast.com. Up there, we've got links to iTunes and Stitcher and our RSS feed, um, all different ways that you can subscribe to the show and get new episodes on Mondays when they hit. Um, You should also go to headgum.com and check out us and the other podcasts on the network. We think you're going to find at least one other show that you like. Probably probably. more than that. Yeah. I don't know what your tastes are. I can't. I don't. I'm not your dad. I can't tell you what to do. Um, but yeah, we, we are we are really excited to be part of the network, and we're just really we're really grateful to have the opportunity to uh, to hopefully reach some new people and and meet some new fans. So yeah, it'll be good. I can also tell you that if you are a book nerd person in the New York area, you should probably go to Book Riot Live, which is November 7th and 8th in Metropolitan West in New York City. If you go to their website at bookriotlive.com, you can use the code OVERDUE to get $20 off full registration. Uh, we got some good friends over at Book Riot, so we're trying to help them out. I think Margaret Atwood's going to be there. Uh, she is going to be there. It's some of the, the events, you have to be 18 and up, uh, and some of the satellite events, you need to be 21 and up. The first two rows may get wet. <laughs> Gallagher's going to be there promoting <laughs> his watermelon cookbook. <laughs> That's not true. But what if it was true? Um, and then the last thing is, if you want to support the show financially, one way you can do it is to go to patreon.com slash overduepod. A very popular uh, donation tier is the $5 a month level, which gets you the uh, the the opportunity to knock a book to the top of our list. Most of the books that we've been reading for the last like six months, I think have been recommended us recommended to us by patrons. And it's just been, it's been a really fun way to expand our horizons a little bit. And we just got a fresh crop of recommendations in this. This one was actually a recommendation from Olivia. So thanks Olivia. I'm actually really, really happy. I've read the book. It's, it's was, it was one that I kind of had to marinate in, so I feel like in kind of relaying all of it for the show, I didn't get to talk about as much about what I liked about it, but mm-hmm. it's a good book. I think people uh, should wrestle with it if they get the chance or at least go watch that old movie because it sounds like it's pretty good. But not the new one. Don't watch the new one. It sounds like it's not as good. There are better Sean Penn movies, let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> okay, everybody. We hope we will see you in Philadelphia next weekend. Um, and if not, we will definitely be back next Monday with a book on George, uh, an episode on George Orwell's 1984. Um, until then, thanks for listening and try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.